Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. Thank you for listening. Today, She Is Here. That's the name of the new exhibition of female artists' works at the Atlanta Contemporary. We'll hear more later in the hour. First up, an extraordinary musical artist reflects on her work. We last spoke with Tina Clark in 2018 after the release of her book, Southern Discomfort. That memoir read like a novel, thanks to Clark's gift of storytelling. Tina Clark has been a storyteller for many years through her music. The Grammy Award-winning composer and music producer joins us now via Zoom. Tina Clark, welcome back to City Lights. Oh, thank you, Lois. I can't think of anything that would make me happier than to be sitting here talking to you. Oh. I'm thrilled to be back. Thrilled. Thrilled to have you back. (laughs) And thinking a lot about a particular body of your work now. Tina, you've worked with music legends from Aretha Franklin and Patti LaBelle to Chaka Khan and Gladys Knight, and that's only a few. The death of George Floyd and protests surrounding his murder, as well as those of other innocent black people, has resulted in a global reckoning about racism. How has this moment made you look back at your protest songs and the music you've written for social justice movements? It's been interesting because I cannot tell you how many people that friends, colleagues, et cetera, acquaintances that have reached out to me and have said, I'm surprised you haven't written a new song about this. Are you writing a new song about this? Are you writing a protest song? And I think for me, I have been at such a loss of, I don't know if it's a loss of words or if it's too many words. I know it will come. And I started looking back on all the songs that I have written 
around various social injustices and social impact. And I just feel that I have a lot to say. And when I feel that way as a writer, I, and I, you've probably, you've talked to so many other writers, you know, it's, it's like you feel it inside of you brewing and it's, it's going to come out, but when and how I'm waiting to see, and I don't mean to sound so esoteric about that, but it truly is a gift with, as far as my emotions are concerned, I remember when you and I were talking about the book and when I started playing the drums at 10, I would beat out my emotions. And I think that's how I became the drummer that I became was because it came out through the music. And then after becoming a songwriter, I think that a lot of my success has been because it, it just builds up until it comes out. I have been thinking about it tremendously. And I looked back on a song that I had written about racism in the late, I think it was the late 80s or early 90s, and a song that I recorded on Gladys Knight. And Gladys and I both were told by the label that it was too in your face. And so it, and believe me, it's not. But at that time, that just shows you the difference in the times. But it did not make it on the album because they said it was too controversial. But it did end up being in just a small film that, you know, was around for a minute. But since then, you know, several years later, Mary Wilson from the Supremes cut it and it's had various lives. But I have been, as you know from my book, this is something that has pained me for decades and decades and decades. And I feel like the best thing I can do is to use my art to try to make an impact. And that you have. What was the title of that song that you worked on with Gladys Knight that you were told was too much in your face? It's called Ain't Gonna Walk the Line. Walk the Line. No reference to Johnny Cash. No reference to Johnny Cash. Uh, His was Walk the Line. Mine was Ain't Gonna Walk the Line. Okay. Talk about the One Billion Rising campaign and your song, Break the Chain. Yeah, as far as writing is concerned, that's probably one of the most impactful and highlight uh, the highlights of my writing career, of what that song has done and the impact that it has made. When I got the call from Eve Ensler that she wanted to meet in Los Angeles, and Eve, as I know a lot of your audience will know, 
is the founder of, you know, One Billion Rising, and also Eve wrote the Vagina Monologues and et cetera, et cetera, many, many accolades. And her work has always been around stopping violence against women on a global level. And so she had reached out to me through Pat Mitchell and Pat, who is a very, very close friend of mine, and said, could we meet in Los Angeles? There's a group that's going to get together and talk about this movement. So I did. I was living in LA at the time. And she asked me to write the song for the movement and that she wanted this movement to happen on February the 14th around the world every year. And that far, her goal was for a billion women to walk out of wherever they were, whatever they were doing in every country. And for these few minutes, they would sing this song and stand up to stop abuse against women. order and it's now after these years I don't know how many years it's been now I would have to look back on gosh eight nine ten something like that it's like a tsunami it's been massive um, the song has been massive I the movement has been massive and it's just overwhelming to me to even go online and look at the hundreds of thousands of videos that have been uploaded of women and men from every country in all these different languages. And, you know, it's just, it's overwhelming. And I'm very humbled by it that I was asked to take a part in this. I read that this song, Break the Chain, was published in 2012. Since the COVID-19 outbreak, the rise in intimate partner violence has doubled. As far as we know, it could be even greater. More people are calling domestic violence hotlines to request help. The UK alone has reported femicide rates higher than they have been in the past 11 years. Wow. So... Sadly, this song rings true eight years later. What was at the heart of what you were trying to convey in Break the Chain? There were so many things I was trying to convey. It is how precious and beautiful 
and special you are as a woman and what God has created and that you are not a second-class citizen. You are not owned by anyone. That no matter how bad things may be, it is you can break that chain. You can break that chain of violence. And that there can be a world that is, one of the lyrics are, safe and free from all oppression. No more rape or incest or abuse. Women are not a possession. There was another line in there too that was one of my favorite lines and it's, this is my body. My body's holy. No more excuses. No more abuses. We are mothers. We are teachers. We are beautiful, beautiful creatures. Because I find that so many times women in that are in oppressed situations or abusive situations start believing the abuser. They start believing that they're not worthy. They start. They believe that so many times that the reason they're being abused is because they deserve it. It's this vicious, vicious cycle. And I think it is about breaking that. And you're absolutely right, Lois. I have read so many things on also about how the rise in abuse during COVID, because if you think about it, they're stuck with that abuser. You know, they may be not going to, both people may not be going to work, or maybe there's not as much money as there was to take care of things. Everything is taken out on that woman. I wanted women to have hope. I wanted people to be able to, women to be able to go out and dance and sing. I also got, at the time I was asked to do this, I got Debbie Allen, who is my cohort, to create the dance for this. So Debbie created the dance, and it is just amazing to watch it. And I feel like women feel right now, probably, and I'm sure there's men too that are abused, but as we all know, the majority is women, that are stuck and are stuck in this abuse. There's always a way to get out, always. Grammy Award-winning composer and producer Tina Clark will be back with more of our conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with the Grammy Award-winning composer and music producer, Tina Clark. Tina, your song, My, My, Mississippi, 
discusses the state's House Bill 1523, and that bill passed in 2016. It gave broad permission to deny services to LGBTQ people on the basis of religious freedom. In the lyrics of the song, you write, you keep hating, we keep waiting, don't you want to heal your past? I was especially moved by your lyrics to this song. How was writing this piece the best way for you to express your feelings about the state's bill? Well, when I first got a call about it, because I, I stay somewhat involved in Mississippi politics, and when I first got the call that this bill was on the table, I tried to reach out to the governor, who I knew. No response, no matter what I tried, no response. And I tried to reach out to some other people, and I knew the people that were fighting on the ground there to stop this. And finally, I just got so frustrated. I just thought, okay, you're going to use your pen to sign something like that. I'm going to use my pen to show the world or show the country. I'm going to use my pen to show how it can be different. And I was on a plane going, flying from Atlanta back to LA. And as this happens a lot of times for me, I was so troubled and, and just disgusted by this whole thing of just repeat abuse in this state that this song just poured out because obviously that's where I'm from originally. And this is not a hateful song. This is a song about begging you to look at the past and not repeat the same mistakes and to be known for something better than that and that we can be better. And I know that's kind of a cliche now, but that's the way I felt. So when these lyrics poured out, spilled out onto the page, I just felt, this may sound a little crazy, but I felt that, well, Maya Angelou was a mentor to me and I had the privilege of spending a lot of time with her. And I felt that this song, once it poured out, that it needed to be acapella. It did not need any other instruments. And I could not figure out why I felt that way. Well, I sent, a, I sent an email. This is really a, a, a wonderful story. I sent an email to a couple of my session singers, you know, recording session singers in Los Angeles. And I said, hey, can you meet me over at my studio in L.A.? I need to cut this. And I told them what it was about. And I said, so if I can just get five or six of y'all and I can just overdub all the parts and we can just layer them and then it'll sound like a big choir. That's what I want to cut. Lois, that was on the plane that morning. I asked them if we could meet that night at my studios. When I got to the studios, 64 top session singers in LA showed up. The email had gone viral to all of my friends and singers and incredible, I mean, everybody from Patty Austin to you name it. We recorded the song. It, it, it still chokes me up today to know the response there. Oh, open up and set them free. Oh, oh, my, my, my 
Mississippi, what you're thinking, what you're drinking, don't you know your ship is sinking fast? Oh my, my, Mississippi, you keep hating, we keep waiting, don't you wanna hear your past? Afraid to take God's children's hand. I don't think that's what God But when it was done, I realized that that song was somewhat channeled <laughs> to me, I felt like, by the time that I had spent with Maya, because we were in the back of her Lincoln, her silver Lincoln, on the way to the studio one day in North Carolina. And she starts, you know, as she would sing when she would give speeches, she started singing this call and response that I had never heard. And it was amazing. And I said, what is that from? And she said, my grandmother used to sing that to us all the time. That was one of the songs they sang in the fields. And I said, oh my God, we've got to record that. She said, oh, you don't want me to record. I said, yes, when we go into the studio to cut this other thing we're doing, we have to record that. I just want you to sing it a cappella. Well, she did. I took that, that particular song back to my studios in LA when I left there. And I built a whole choir around that song, but it was a cappella because it was coming from the fields. It was coming from the dirt, from the, earth from the soil of those souls of the people at that time and i think this song that's what it feels like so that's where that song came from tina it is amazing in its power and learning about maya angelou's relationship with you and that she was a mentor makes all the more sense given the poetry of the lyrics and why you wanted it to be a cappella because it really, I was trained as a musician. I never want to say it doesn't need music. No, it is music, but the purity of voices alone just drives home the message that much more powerfully here. What you're thinking, what you're drinking, don't you want to heal your past? And you keep hating, we keep waiting, the refrains there. I love the metaphor. You invoke the mighty Mississippi River itself when you say it keeps rolling, rolling all through the land, but... You keep swimming backwards, afraid to take your brother's hand. I think you've got another book to write about my Angelou here. <laughs> I don't know. It still seems surreal to me that I had that opportunity over those years. 
And I was introduced to Maya by, do you know, the opera star Denise Graves? Of course. I had the privilege of interviewing her twice and hearing her sing. Oh, she's unbelievable. So yes, that's how I met Maya. Oh, fantastic. The U.S. State Department commissioned you to present a song for Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. Please tell us about I Believed. Well, it was one of those other moments when I get this phone call and, you know, I get a call from Ann Stock, who was at the State Department with Hillary at that time, and also Milan Revere. And they wanted to surprise the Secretary of State far because she was, you know, ending that chapter in her life. And for International Women's Day with the Women of Courage Awards that they would do every year at the State Department, they wanted a song written that could somehow encapsulate the work that Secretary Clinton had done all of her life and through all the years. And that was another tall order. I, I flew to DC, I met with both of them and they were so excited that she was gonna be surprised by this. So when the International Women of Courage Awards happened at the State Department and women from all over the world, and believe me, I did not feel worthy even being in that auditorium because these were women that had lost loved ones who had lost limbs themselves had done just these were extraordinary feats and encourage that these women had had to make a change and make a difference and fight back and stand up for other women and other family members in other countries etc cetera, etc cetera. with that said i had gotten judith hill who i don't know if you ever saw 20 feet from stardom the documentary is a, a fairly well-known artist now, but she was with Michael Jackson when he passed. She was with Prince at the time that we lost Prince. She was the mega, mega star go-to as far as background singer and duet singer, etc. And she's a great artist in her own right, not just a back, I'm not saying just a background singer, but she did more than backgrounds. I reached out to her and said, look, I've written this song Secretary Clinton, I would love for you to sing it. I recorded it on her. I sent it to them. They loved it. We go for this event at the State Department, and it's um, Secretary Clinton and Michelle Obama sitting next to each other on the stage, and these 10 women who were being awarded this award. And then at a certain point during the program, they said, we have a special surprise for you now, Secretary Clinton. This song was written for you and for your work and everything that you have done for all the women in the world. And Judith went up and sang the song. I never thought beyond the boundaries I didn't know I had a choice I never knew anyone was listening I didn't know
was unbelievable. So that was where I believe came from. Tina, does this song have added meaning for you now with 2020 as the centennial of the passage of the 19th Amendment of women gaining the right to vote? Of course, and it's amazing. And at the same time, it seems like I can't believe it's only been that, that short of a time since women were recognized the right to vote. I feel like now, with where we are, it's a nightmare that's trying to be repeated through certain forces. And I think now is, is I don't think any young woman or woman or man anywhere can take for granted for one second where we are right now and how important that right that you have for all the people and not just the women who died and were abused and everything else trying to get this passed for years and decades and their rights not being acknowledged. But the men, men and women who fought for us to be able to vote, for somebody to take for granted that you, to not, to make the choice that you're not going to vote, to me is pretty close to unforgivable and especially right now. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. My guest today is songwriter and producer Tina Clark. We're discussing music she has written on behalf of human rights. We Belong is a song you wrote last year for the upcoming Clarkston documentary. Now, for anyone unfamiliar with the city of Clarkston, it's part of the metro Atlanta area and noted for its vast diversity as it's become a home for many refugees and asylum seekers coming to the U.S. Sixty languages are spoken in Clarkston alone. Would you take us through We Belong as it relates to the documentary? Yes. I mean, when I got a call from Aaron Bernhardt, who I know that you know, who is an amazing filmmaker and an amazing young woman, to write the theme song for this, I really didn't know anything about Clarkston. And so I was just blown away when I was able to dive into this and saw some trailers from, you know, which they already had, and to learn that it was America's most diverse square mile. I was like, really? Really? And, you know, the film follows a Muslim refugee and a former Klansman on their journey to find healing in this country. And it is a beautiful, riveting documentary. Hopefully it'll be coming out. Um, I, I know there hasn't been a date set yet, but maybe in within a year, I don't know because of COVID how far it's pushed back. But anyway, it's incredible. And it, it, it's a beautiful doc. The song was about just exactly what the title is, that we belong. No matter what country you're from, a refugee from whatever country or whoever you are, that here in this country, what we are built on is taking in our brothers and sisters and giving them 
a new life and a new start. You know, Lois, sometimes I just will look up at the stars at night and I see the same stars and the moon that you do, or that my brothers and sisters in Afghanistan or in Africa or Japan, wherever. We all want the same things. We all want to be loved. We all want to take care of our families. We all want our children to do well. We want to have a good life. And just because you're a refugee doesn't mean that you don't want those exact same things. And for me, the song was about not being afraid of people that are different from you, not having that fear to walk hand in hand. I mean, there's a part in the song that I repeat what we are built on, you know, from a refugee standpoint. Go to America, we are told. Bring us your tired, your poor and old. We're working all day and working all night. We are here to give, not take away. And it's about opening your hearts and opening your minds and opening your doors that I think that we will all find that we are sisters, we are brothers, we are family. We're all families, just like each other. We have hopes and dreams and families too. We're more alike than different, just like you. For me, it was just about getting rid of this fear, our exclusivity, our feeling like you are the chosen one or that you are so elite that everything is supposed to be a certain way in a tiny little box and you're gonna do whatever you can to keep others out. I don't want to live in that world. That's not the world to me that God created. Invite someone over to dinner that you never have had in your house before and see if you can walk away from that meal feeling like you are better than those people. I just, I don't know how you can walk away not feeling different. Now we turn to the queen, Aretha Franklin, (laughs) the queen of soul herself saying, stand up for yourself. The song has been an anthem for health care reform. Tina, how were you able to get Aretha Franklin involved with this song you wrote? Well, Aretha and I worked together for quite a while, and Norman Lear had reached out to me because Norman is also a mentor of mine, and we have been very close friends for many years, and he was doing the, um, the tour of the Declaration of Independence. I don't know if you remember that or not. I do. Pearl Clegg did a project with teenagers at the Alliance Theater surrounding that. Oh, okay, okay. Well, he had reached out to me first and talked to me about the election um, at that time and about 
getting people to use their voice and to stand, you know, to declare themselves. It was a whole project that he was working on. And I first started thinking about it then. I talked to, at the time Hillary was running, and this was the first time, uh, so that would be 2008. And I thought, you know, I want to write this for Hillary. And I want to write this to, for her to use as a theme song for the campaign and, you know, for people to get out and vote, et cetera, et cetera. And I went to Aretha and talked to Aretha about it. And she was very much into it. Then AARP said, you know, we want you to write a song <laughs> to engage people in voting and to get people out to vote. And that can somewhat be our theme song. They commissioned me to do it. And it was like these, all three of these worlds kind of came together. It was not that by any means that they were being partisan, that they were looking at this as a Hillary song. It was, it was literally before I even went there, this was about getting people out to vote. So Aretha and I went in the studio and cut it in New York. The rest was kind of history with it. I mean, it's, it's still very prevalent today. And with this election, this song, I, I, I wish this song were, was playing every single day on radio and everywhere else you could find it right now because to me, it is just, it's so important. You say that you don't matter What difference does it make? No one listens to you So there's nothing here to stay You choose to stay contented To give your voice away To let another speak for you Don't you have nothing to say Declare yourself Declare your independence Give yourself Chance to make a difference It's your life And your rights And with this life It initially, that Divided We Fail coalition, which AARP began in 07, this really was used as an anthem yes. to the Affordable Health Care Act. You're right. What meaning did the song take on in 2012? 
I think it was just, it, I mean, the whole song really is about standing up for yourself, using your voice. When you don't use your voice, you are letting someone else talk for you. And it's all about using your voice and standing up. And in the, in the bridge, when I have kind of a gospel choir singing the bridge, which is you've got to use your mind for thinking, you got to use your eyes for seeing, you got to use your heart for believing that there's a better way, a better way. You're the only one who can do it. You got the power. Now you got to use it. You got the chance now. Don't refuse it. You got to stop and find a way to declare yourself, declare your independence, give yourself the chance to make a difference. It's your life, it's your right, and with this life, if you do nothing else, stand up for yourself. Why do you think music has helped to empower social justice movements throughout history? My vessel has always been music, and now a book. But I think the arts, whether it's film, television, a Broadway show, songs, books, can change the hearts and minds of people. I mean, and I'm saying it can move the needle because you can hear a song and go, wow, that hit an emotional connection in me that made me think. Or how many times have you ever walked out of a movie and said, God, I'll never feel the same way about blah, blah, blah again. And I think with music, even more so, that it transcends all, there's no borders, there's no walls. Music is a language, and I've spent my whole life trying to translate this. There's no more of an emotional power than the connection of music. So you don't have to see anything. All you got to do is hear, and you're able to be transcended a lot of times and also your heart and mind changed. Tina, listening to you talk about this reminded me of a passage you wrote in Southern Discomfort that I will close with, and I'm going to read it to you. Okay, I like that. (laughs) From that moment I put drumsticks to drum at the music store in Laurel, Mississippi. I had been obsessed with the drums and dreamed of one day playing professionally. I wanted to play like I heard Mahalia Jackson sing or Martin Luther King Jr. speak with power, with grace, with joy and with a language all my own. Tina Clark, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Lois. It is always a huge gift and blessing to speak to you. Grammy Award-winning composer, author, and producer, Tina Clark. We've been discussing songs she's written for various social justice movements and protests throughout her career. You will find a list of those songs and more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights.
100 years after the U.S. Constitution guaranteed women the right to vote, women artists still have less representation in galleries and museum exhibitions. The Atlantic Contemporary is intentionally featuring the works of female artists in a new show opening this weekend titled She Is Here. The curators, Kristen Cahill and Aricia DeMar, are with us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. What was the inspiration behind She Is Here? Initially, uh, Veronica invited us to co-curate the exhibit, and we immediately I think it was probably within the first 10 minutes or so, Kristen, that we decided, oh, we should just work with women artists. And can you tell us about the title of the show? It's really drawing on, of course, the institutional uh, Atlanta Contemporary Organization as women led by Veronica. And then also Kristen and I as the curators and of course the artists are all women. And then I think it speaks to what you started the interview with. She is here is also a statement saying she is and we are here. And we intentionally created an exhibition of 20 female artists to create opportunity and make a statement that art made by women is just as good if not better than art made by men. Would you talk about some of the artists whose works are represented in the show? Two of the pieces that we're both pretty excited about are um, collaborative projects that were made specifically for the exhibition, uh, and made during Sheltering in Place. And the artists are Jill Frank and Nikita Gale. And Jill and Nikita became friends while they were in the studio artist program and have remained very close friends. Nikita moved to Los Angeles and she and Jill talk every day and they've never collaborated together on a project. And we have a video piece from Jill that Nikita narrated. And then we have a sound piece from Nikita uh, and the sound is Jill's voice, I would say, or whistling. And what type of works? What media are represented? Painting, sculpture, video, sound, installation art, land art. So it is a wide spectrum of work showcased. Absolutely. Several artists have work that speaks to their mothers and relationships with their mothers, but two artists uh, specifically that come to mind are Lillian Blades and Cecilia Kane. Cecilia created 89 mixed media works from handkerchiefs, and they belonged to her mother, and she used 89 because that was um, the, the years that her mother lived. She starts with a photograph of how she's feeling, and she then prints the photograph on just a home printer onto her handkerchief. And then she decides what, what it is that she's feeling. She places that on, on the handkerchief. She sews and embroiders. It's 
really, really fantastic um, series. And then it also speaks to Lillian Blade's work that is a mixed media assemblage. And um, anyone who is familiar with um, Lillian Blades, she incorporates lots of found objects. And it's just a, a, a homage to her mother. Um, and actually Lillian had never met her mom. She died in childbirth. So she shared this story with us. What a powerful story. Veronica Kesnick is the executive director of the Atlanta Contemporary, and she is joining us now. Veronica, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's nice to be with you. Of course. She's here will be the first exhibition at the Atlanta Contemporary following the impact of COVID-19. And this weekend, there will be a in-person showing of the exhibition. How will that work with new safety regulations? You know, these are, uh, the understatement of the century, of course, is that these are unprecedented times. But we closed back in March and almost immediately began thinking of how to get back open. You know, art is not designated as an essential business, and yet it is essential for compassion and human understanding and, and our ability to, to comprehend ourselves, particularly given this time. And so we, we made massive, significant upgrades to our, um, our campus itself. We actually put a brand new HVAC system in that's using something called bipolar ionization technology, which is a type of air purification that basically uses uh, voltage to make any airborne viruses inert and fall to the ground. And so that's one one way in which we're supporting, you know, gathering in public and, and ensuring health and safety. We're also, of course, mandating that masks are worn on premise. And then we're following suit of our peers and colleagues who have been open. We, we actually had reopened back in July for a few weeks so that people could see the previous exhibition, but we're using timed ticketed entry, of course, free admission every day. Um, and so we have limited capacity. We're going to mandate how you navigate through the space. And, and we're already seeing, you know, time slots fill up for, um, for the weekend. But, you know, of course, ensuring social distancing and, and making sure that people have the ability to see the space. I mean, the campus itself is 30,000 square feet. So we, we have a lot of space to, to spread out and to be able to see the works in person. How does this exhibition reinforce the Atlanta Contemporary's mission to support diverse artists and promote inclusivity? You know, our our intent back in January when we announced that we were going to be working with independent curators was to ensure equity and diversity. We hadn't had a female curator since Helena Rickett had departed, which is now almost decades ago. And so this was a beautiful opportunity for us to support diversity, not only on the walls, but also in, in curatorial and artistic leadership. And I'm very excited and proud and grateful to the work that Teresia and Kristen have done because they've 
thought very intentionally about who's being shown, what's being shown, and and how our audience, when they come either in person or engage virtually and online, can see themselves reflected in the work. Veronica Kessenek is the executive director of the Atlanta Contemporary. Kristen Cahill and Aricia DeMar curated the exhibition She Is Here, which opens this Saturday at the Atlanta Contemporary. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with Hummingbirds. The education director of Georgia Audubon will tell us about a Facebook Live event with these amazing creatures. Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden are City Lights producers. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.